This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Well, as they say in the classics, it's the most wonderful time of the year. No, it is not Christmas, it's tax season. So if you're listening to this right now, you might need to do some prep before the end of the financial year, or if you're listening to this after the 1st of July, well, maybe this will prompt you to get your records happening and maybe can you set up a system so this time next year, it's a lot more organized. We'll get straight into the episode today, but we can't do our Tuesday show without Sharesies. Did you know that the Sharesies app has over 8,000 companies and exchange-traded funds on the AU, US, and NZ share markets? That means tons of options to invest in the things that you value. Get $10 added to your account when you sign up to the Sharesies platform using the exclusive promo code MMM. All investing involves risks, T's and C's and fees apply. And just as you're listening to this, Sharesies is one of those platforms that at the end of the financial year, they'll send you a consolidated statement and all record keeping is taken care of. So at the end of the financial year, you've got one PDF document to give to your accountant or to complete your tax return. My name's Glenn James. I'm joined by Amy. She's a chartered accountant or a CA. And you're listening to my millennial money. It's tax time, baby. Amy, welcome to My Millennial Money. Thanks, Glenn, for having me. Radio. As I said at the top, Amy, you're a qualified chartered accountant. Yes, I am. Would we just say Amy the CA? Yeah, you can do that. Awesome. The first question in the Facebook group is from Alyssa. What documents do you need to keep and how to make it easier at tax time for shares? Yep. So record keeping is very important in terms of um, shares. So you've obviously got to keep record of transactions in terms of sale and purchase. And then you've also got dividends, distributions and all of that. So you've got your buy and sell contract notices, dividend statements. If you're on a dividend reinvestment plan, there'll also be some notices for that. Um, If you're investing in managed funds or ETFs, you're going to have annual tax statements. If you do, however, use um, an investing platform or you have an advisor, a lot of the times they can provide you with consolidated reports, but obviously best to keep everything just in case. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm a big believer in making my life easy when it comes to record keeping. And, you know, if you are uh, using a share brokerage platform, I would suggest from day one, you know, you plug in the services of like ShareSide or something like that just to keep your records and have it all smooth. Because as you know, Amy, for those who hold their investments for a long time and there might be dividend reinvestment plans and they do not keep their records, it can actually just make it more time consuming at tax time for the CA 
to do the return, which means higher fee. Yeah, exactly. Myself personally, I used ShareSite for the first time last year and like absolutely incredible. Got all these different holdings. It just consolidates it all into one mm. and just makes it less overwhelming for me. So imagine, you know, the ordinary person out there, it would really help. Yeah. And, but I'm, I think the difference that I've got, like, I don't use a broker direct, like, you know, Sharesies sponsor this um, podcast in this episode, like Sharesies have consolidated reporting. So they'll send you a report at the end of the year, just send that to the accountant, bam, done. Yeah, it makes it easy. And also if you have your TFN linked, a lot of the time everything will flow through to the ATO. So, But the only thing with linking the TFN and the pre-fill, is it fair to say that there might be some information that isn't, because that would only flow through income, right, from the dividends? It wouldn't have disposal and purchase information. Um, so recently the ATO do get some information on the disposals, um, but sometimes they'll just show the figure exclusive of brokerage or it won't show the purchase, it'll only show the sale. So we still need to obviously have the buy and sell documents. Aha, uh-huh, perfect. Caitlin says, it's my first time investing with a HIN and directly owning shares. I was wondering when the statements generally arrive for this. I'm assuming it may be provided differently than investing in platforms like Sharesies or Raise. So thank you. So yeah, just following on for that, any motherhood comments for Caitlin? Yeah. So I guess if it's just direct shares, obviously you've got your dividend statements, which normally will get sent to you when the dividend's paid. But if you are investing in managed funds or ETFs, um, which have the tax distribution statements, they're not going to come out anywhere between August, September, October. Um, So just, I guess, on that note, don't rush out. Don't lodge your tax return one July because it's going to be wrong. You're going to have to fix it up. It's just going to cause so much more dramas. So wait till you get everything and then do your return. What I found with my own personal tax affairs, investment properties and all that, what I do, I've got a spreadsheet that lists everything that I need to give to my accountant at tax time. And then the next year, so, you know, we're coming up to the end of this financial year, I've got my list of things that I need to remember. So if you're getting involved with shares and investing and all that the first time this financial year, make a list on a Google sheet or a Office 365 or whatever it's called and use that each year. And whether it is, you know, direct shares, dividend statements or consolidated report from sharesies, like you're going to need this stuff each year. Alexi, can capital losses be used to offset capital gains for the same year or do I have to pay tax on capital gains now and losses only get carried forward over to the next years? So with that one, the simple answer is yes, you can offset your losses against the gains that you incur in that year. Um, But I guess it's just a little bit of an order of application in how you go about this. So there's, I guess, two different types of capital gains. You've got your discountable, which means you've held them for more than 12 months, and then you've got your undiscountable. So when you're applying losses to your gains, you offset against the undiscountable gains first. And then obviously, if there's some left, you apply it to the discountable and then the net discountable amount you can discount. Would you be able to give us a really basic practical example of that and maybe just use $10,000, like you bought some shares for $10,000 and they decreased and then you sold them? Yeah, of course. So you've purchased shares for $10,000 let's say, you know, you're in the middle of COVID, the market's just gone bad. You um, sell them for only five grand. Obviously, you're going to pick up a capital loss of $5,000. 
let's just say the year progresses, you're doing well, you then make a capital gain on another share. This one example, it's discountable and you make the gain of $8,000. You can offset the 5,000 into the 8,000. You're left with 3,000 gain, which is discountable. So one and a half. Yeah. And the cool thing, you know, if there is a silver lining, capital losses, you can take them to the grave. So they stay in your own tax return, tax file number forevermore. Amen. Yep. So you just keep them as as long as it takes for you to make capital gains. Yeah. So that's interesting because, you know, a lot of times you might invest in something and it doesn't go well and you're like, you know what, I'm just going to cut my losses. The emotional side of this is killing me. The silver lining is that loss can be used to offset gains in the future. I mean, I'd rather make money, but, you know, at times you can have a capital loss. Joshua asks, if shares are sold in USD on an overseas trading platform and wired to your account, is the tax already applied the moment you receive the transaction or at end of financial year? Does the same apply if Australian dollars? My understanding is that this is just capital gains tax. So whether you want to talk to Joshua's question directly or have some motherhood statements about, you know, if you bought Apple shares direct in your own name. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So there's a bit to unpack in this one, but we're just going to assume, obviously you're buying or selling in USD. Let's just pretend you're buying direct shares through the US stock market. Um, and also that you're an Australian resident for tax purposes. So a requirement of that is you are subject to tax on your worldwide income, no matter where it's come from. So overseas share investments taxable in Australia. So in order to prevent double taxation, Australia and all these other countries around the world have what's called tax treaties, which basically just define how they're going to treat transactions between the two different countries. So For the US, as an example, what you have to fill out is called a W-8 form. Basically, what this means is that when you sell those shares down the track, the US is going to withhold no tax at all. So then what you'll just do is you'll just put that straight into, obviously, your Australian tax return. You won't have any foreign income tax credits to declare or to get back in Australia just because there's been no tax already withheld in the US. Mm. So I've made the decision in my life that I do not hold anything that isn't domiciled in Australia because I hate, smart. yeah, I just hate paperwork. <laughs> yeah. It's wild, right? Oh, I had to do one of the W8 forms for my trust that I invest in like US stocks for. And yeah. I hated it. And I was like, I'm an accountant. Like <laughs> yeah. this is not fun. Yeah. And realistically, you know, sure. All these different platforms allow you to invest in the US. And if you want to do that directly, absolutely knock yourself out but you just need to realize there is an extra layer of paperwork and record keeping that will be required. Mm, I also find the brokerage is a lot higher as well. The mm. platform that I use, it was charging me about 30 US dollars just to make a trade yeah. in comparison to, I guess, like on Comsec, normally it's $9.95 or something, depending on the value, but yeah, it'll get you. Yeah. So anyway, just be warned that the main thing is if you're buying non-domiciled uh investments such as an ETF or a direct equity, you have to fill out a US government form that they send in to your broker to say, do not withhold any tax because I'll be paying the tax here in Australia where I'm the tax resident. Is that a very basic, easy way to say that? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So knock yourself out, but we all lay in the bed we make for ourselves 
But yeah, as I said, I think the best bed to make is a an easy bed with less paperwork. <laughs> exactly. So there you go. Keep your records, everyone, and happy investing. Rightio, let's talk about Hex and Help Debt uh, briefly. You know, the 1st of June, the indexation rate increased. A lot of you in the Facebook group have said that you've cleared your Hex and Help Debt. Amy, what do people need to now consider now that they have cleared their Hex or Help Debt? Yep. So the first thing I would say is obviously when you start a new job with your employer, you fill out a tax file declaration form and that states on there that you do have a hex debt, which then obviously means your employer will withhold the additional tax. What you now will need to do once the debt is cleared, you need to fill out a new tax file declaration form. You'll tick no to do you have a hex debt and then lucky you, you get some extra net income every fortnight, week, month, whatever you get paid. And the other silver lining is all the money that's been withheld over the last uh, financial year, that will be refunded back to you because effectively your employer has withheld too much tax? Yep, correct. So it would just be a washout when you lodge your tax return. They'll basically compare what you should have paid tax. They'll show that you don't owe any HEX um, repayment and then the difference between what was withheld and what you did owe is going to come back as a refund. Sweet. Let's talk about working from home. Millie says, can you please explain the working from home claims, how they'll work and the calculator? I know there were some changes and wanted to better understand it. So maybe just paint the scene uh, with working from home, deductions, methods, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Okay. So I guess we'll start off with during COVID, the ATO introduced its shortcut um, rate, which basically, as it suggests, 80 um, cents per hour you work from home and it covers absolutely everything. So your phone, your internet, depreciation on your equipment, um, electricity and everything. So that one finished on the 30th of June, 2022. So you cannot use that now for this current financial year. So then we're left with the two remaining options. So we've got the actual cost method, which is still the same as what it was previously. You claim, as the name suggests, the actual cost of everything that you incur in relation to working from home. And then we've got the fixed rate method. So this one was also around back in the prior financial years. However, this is the one that there's been a lot of changes with recently. So can you explain what the fixed rate method is, please? Yeah, of course. So the fixed rate for the 2023 financial year has gone up to 67 cents per hour. You work from home. So this rate now includes your internet and mobile phone, which it never used to, um, and also includes things such as electricity, your stationary consumables. So in addition to claiming this fixed rate, you can also separately claim your depreciation. So if you buy your laptop, a phone, whatever, you can claim that depreciation in addition to this. Um, I will also note that the ATO has come out um, saying record keeping for this one is pretty important um, just in case there's ever an investigation or an audit um, on your tax return. So you need to be keeping um, from 1st of March, 2023, just a record, like a work diary or something that shows when you're working from home and when you're not. Um, And then also have a copy, at least one copy of a phone bill or an electricity notice, just so you can prove that you are actually incurring costs and you're Mm. not just trying to claim a deduction for things that you haven't used. So interestingly enough, um, I've just crunched, you know, the 67 cents per hour. If you worked 38 hours a week from home, 
and you were a good little employee and didn't bloody have long lunches and all that crap, that's $25.46 a week. And if you worked for 48 weeks, and this isn't including public holidays because I just crunch this on the fly, I'm basically saying the maximum that you can put as a line item work from home fixed rate deduction is basically $1,222. Like it's not changing the world, but it is an option if you don't want to get into the weeds and pro rata your power bill, your internet bill, your phone bill, your whatever bill, right? Yeah, exactly. It makes it cleaner for everyone. Yeah. So the actual cost method, for example, if I, um, gosh, what's a really wild example? If I purchased a mobile phone, like a second phone, and I only use that phone for work stuff, I could deduct that monthly fee 100% as an actual cost. Yep, correct. So if that was $60 a month, that's $60 a month, that's the actual cost. We know that will be worth more to you in your return than doing the 67 cents. So if you want to put the work in and keep the records, you may be able to deduct more. There was a question here from Anonymous. Can you claim something that you use for work that might not be essential? E.g., I'm considering getting an iPad, even though I have access to my phone or computer, as I know it will improve efficiency uh, for scheduling and things. So, I don't know, maybe not give you know, exact advice, but maybe talk a little bit generically around the nice things to have that make work better. Yeah, of course. So any assets like that that you're purchasing, so phones, computers and iPads, providing that they're over $300, which these days you don't get much for $300, um, you do have to depreciate those ones in your tax return. So the ATO has a list of what they deem is the useful life of those assets. Um, And then obviously you depreciate it over that. You will also apportion it if you buy it throughout the financial year. So you're only claiming the amount of days that you held it. And also, once again, your work-related use percentage, you need to apportion for that. Yeah, sweet. Um, Talk to us about smaller items under $300. Like if I bought a separate mouse and keyboard, if if that mouse and keyboard combo, I use it 100% for work and it's under $300, that's an instant write-off. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, correct. You can just put that straight in as a deduction. Yeah. And just to spell the myth about claiming stuff back on tax... You know where I'm going with that myth? Yeah, I know where you're going. <laughs> so your the amount of tax that you get back is only based off your marginal tax rate. So you're claiming, let's pretend we're claiming our 1,200 of home office expenses, whatever the figure was before. You're not going to get $1,200 in tax back. You're only going to get whatever your marginal rate is. So this could be 19%, 345 If you're on top marginals, 45%. So it just varies depending on your rate. Yeah. The government do not give out free money. They do not. So that's a that's a good myth there. Uh, Emily asks, benefits of salary sacrifice versus claiming back at tax time. So I'm assuming she's saying the salary sacrifice week on week from my wage versus I'll put a lump in at the end of the financial year and claim that as a personal contribution or feed the super fund $200 or the amount per month and claim that back 
Yeah. So there's not really much of a difference with this. It's more just, I guess, a washout effect at end of year, whether you want, I guess, more cash flow now or later. Um, so if you're salary sacrificing from your employer, obviously it's going to look like you're earning a lower salary. So they're going to tax you at the lower amount. The trick there is if you do have hex and help debt, right? If you do salary sacrifice to super. Yeah, correct. Because your repayment income for HEX purposes is going to include any reportable super contributions. So these include reportable ones from your employer and also your own deductible ones that you make. Yeah. So again, it all comes out in the wash, as you said. Um, It's just really easy. If you want it out of sight, out of mind, automatically done, sure, get work to do it. (laughs) Um, Some people might go, look, I want to put an extra 10 grand a year in. I'll bring that home and have it on my offset. Like, knock yourself out. I don't think there's hundreds of dollars in interest saved, but there are certainly options, right? Yeah. Cool. Well, we'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, study and some income, particularly around if you've got a de facto or partner. We'll be back after this. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Amy, let's talk about income stuff, particularly around couples. Sally asks, when is it beneficial or detrimental to have your de facto and your tax returns combined? Is it a legal requirement? So this one doesn't really come up to your choice of when you want or when you don't. Um, There are some ATO inclusions. So basically they define a spouse as anyone you're in a relationship with um, or anyone that you were at one point in time in that financial year. So this includes obviously de facto relationships um, if you're married and all of that. It is very important to make sure that this is up to date in your tax return because it does affect your entitlements to a bunch of offsets, um, reductions, and also such as the Medicare levy surcharge, which we will talk about soon. Yeah. And also for family tax benefit stuff, yeah? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Chelsea said, it's very similar questions, but I'll read it for completeness. Do you have to combine tax returns for de facto? Been living with my partner for 18 months, but would prefer to keep our separate at the moment. So would you say if there's no kids on the table, if there are no government benefits on the table, if there isn't 
health insurance on the table, there's no requirement to combine or at least mention, because it's not quote unquote combined tax return. It's just mentioning the spouse's income on the other one, isn't it? Yeah, correct. Yeah. You don't pay tax on their income. They don't pay tax on your income, but I guess- And it's not like a joint return. It's merely mentioning my spouse's taxable income is this amount. Yeah. Like I guess if you put it simply, if you're both- pretend you're both back at uni, like you're earning 20 grand a year each, obviously you're going to be under all the income tests mm. for everything. But I guess as per what the ATO wants, they would see you living with someone in a relationship as you should be putting them in your return. Yeah, right. Okay. So if you are living as a de facto for over two years, we'll just you know kick the can. It's been two years, you're living with someone, they're effectively your spouse, right? Whether you split money or not, then ATO probably say or do say that you should mention their amount in the tax in each other's tax return. Yeah, that's Re- correct. Yeah, okay. So regardless of whether there is Centrelink benefits or not or family tax benefits or not. Now, I'm sure a lot of people don't do that who are in long-term relationships and living together. But like anything, we might actually use this as a segue to the accountant questions before we talk about study. But If you're engaged with an accountant who's a professional who lives in this world every day, you just follow their advice. Like pretty simple, right? Yeah, very simple. Mm. So on accountants, you pesky little accountants, Toby said, could you please clarify times where an accountant would come in useful for those who don't have assets yet or stocks? Can they still give value to your end of financial year claims and tax returns? So- yeah, if I've got a pretty simple life, do I need to pay an accountant? Look, I guess this one's probably pretty subjective. Depends on, I guess, what you find value in. Um, as you said, if they haven't really got many assets or shares or anything. Um, but I guess depending on your occupation or your job, there may be a bunch of things that you're actually entitled to claim that you just have no idea about. So obviously accountants can help um, with that. Also, I guess as you're growing with your finances, um, we can provide, we can't really provide investment advice um, unless obviously your accountant's licensed, but we can help explain tax consequences of certain transactions. Um, if you're looking to expand your business, say you're a sole trader and you're wanting to, I guess, look at different options, there's like structuring advice, which can be pretty important um, and can really help save money in the future. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I've asked an accountant, should you use an accountant? Like it's always going to be yes, but <laughs> it's like <laughs> you can claim the accountant's fee on next year's tax return as well. So there's a, a silver lining if you wish. Here's one from Taz. When you change accountants, can you request that they review any previous tax returns lodged by other accountants or can you only ask them to review ones you've lodged yourself? Yeah. So generally, I guess the scope of work taking on a new client is the current year or if that's already done the next year. But obviously you can get in contact with them and say, hey, I just want to check a few things. You know, I don't think my previous accountant claimed this right. Or, hey, did they, you know, do I have a depreciation schedule on my rental property or should I be getting one? Um, We can obviously help with all of that. Yeah. I mean, it's like, and I'll pick on the lawyers there because you guys are fun to pick on, but like, a lawyer will always work for you litigating something as long as you're paying them. Like if you want your accountant to spend five hours going through the last four, five, six years of returns, if you pay them, they will. There's no, I think what Taz is going, it's more like, is it possible? Um, 
Is it five or six years that you can just go back through and easily amend a return on the ATO portal? I think it may be five. Yeah, I was in there yeah. literally yesterday and I it kind of I went through all my information and I'm like, oh, I can amend returns. But yeah, I mean, you can get anyone to do anything if you pay them. If you are changing accountants, my accountant can log in at their back end and the, the ATO's back end and see all my shat, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. So once you come on as an accountant, um, you sign a form that basically allows us to access your details on the ATO and we can, I think we can see back maybe about 10 years yeah. or so of um, tax returns and obviously we can request more from the ATO if we need to. So what's the process of I go to my new accountant for them to be able to see my affairs? Can there only be one tax agent that has access to my affairs? Like how's that work? Yep. So generally um, we will write an ethical letter to the previous accountant and just say, They've approached us like, is there any ethical reasons why we shouldn't accept them? And then once that gets approved, the ball's rolling and we basically get you added on and we can see everything and act on your behalf. And getting added on to your login, it would remove the client's profile from being seen from the old accountant. Yeah, correct. It essentially just updates the tax agent from them over to us. Yeah, cool. Uh, Let's move on to study Vanessa said, I'm currently studying for a career pivot, which is not related to my current job. If I gain employment in the near future, which then aligns up with my study, am I able to claim part of my course costs on tax? I'm paying weekly at the moment, so I haven't paid it all up front. Mm. What's the go on that? Is there a line in the sand on the month or is it as long as it's all happening in the financial year? So it all has to be relevant to the income that you're currently earning. So as per the ATO's website and all their um, documents, they say that you can only claim the deduction if it has sufficient connection to earning the income from your employment activities at the time it's being incurred. So sufficient connection can include obviously it improving your skills, your knowledge that you require in that job, or obviously it's helping you progress within that career that you're already working at. Okay, so to Vanessa's situation... If she was doing study, uh, she started in January this year and she's uh, a plumber at the moment, right? And she's studying bookkeeping and the bookkeeping course is $100 a month. And January, she's still a plumber paying $100. February, still a plumber paying $100. March, still a plumber paying $100. April, works in a bookkeeper's office, pays the $100. May bookkeeper hundred dollars, June bookkeeper hundred dollars. That's six months of six hundred dollar payments. In theory, she could claim half of that because of half of that time has been a direct relationship with bookkeeping her job and the course being studied. Yeah, correct. Because at that point, she's been employed as a bookkeeper, and obviously, this study is going to help her to mm. progress in that role. Yeah. Well, she's changed from dealing with crap in a toilet to crap in people's bank accounts. So there you go. (laughs) My bookkeeper probably feels he's a freaking plumber sometimes. Um, Christy said, I'm a law student doing paralegal work. Can I claim the cost of my law studies, fees, textbooks, et cetera, towards my income or is it too remote? Ooh, sounds like and talks like and feels like a duck. What do you reckon, Amy? Yeah, I think as long as there's a nexus between obviously your studying and the job, 
Yeah. Now, a few questions left. Hope this is feeling helpful, everyone. Lani said, stupid question, and there's never stupid questions in our Facebook group, but I've bought my first home within the past financial year. Is there anything I need to provide to the ATO about this? Anything extra I can claim on? So for this question, I think we should assume that it's the first home that Lani has purchased to live in. Anything that you need to let the ATO know once you become a property owner of a principal place of residence? Not really. To be honest, they have their ways and they can find out about everything. But I guess just important, make sure you update your address um, with the ATO to match. Um, Also important, don't claim any expenses in relation to that because you're just going to jeopardize your principal place of residence CGT exemption. So that can result in a lot of tax in the future. Yeah. So if Lani was working from home in her new house and she measured the square meterage of the whole house and then measured the square meterage of her home office and prorated that against the mortgage repayment and claimed that amount each month, when she goes to sell, there would be a prorata change to the capital gains tax discount because she had claimed that room from work from home. Yeah, correct. So I guess with any work from home and those kind of costs, only do your running costs, obviously, like your Um, electricity and your phone and your internet, which a lot of those, if you're using um, the fixed rate method, will be incorporated into that. Yeah, sweet. Now, assuming Lani purchased her first investment property this financial year, doesn't live in it, no plans to live in it, what does she have to do for the first financial year? Yep. So I guess providing that one's rented out obviously needs to go into a tax return. So you'll give the ATO all the details of the property, how long it's been rented out for, when it was first rented out. Um, and then obviously you need to keep records of all your income, all your expenses. So if you do use a property agent, they help a bit there. So they give you a financial year summary of everything. Um, but obviously there's extra additional costs that may not be paid with the agent. So interest on your loans, um, sometimes your rates and water, you'll pay yourself, you'll pay the insurance yourself. Um, and also if it's a quite recent property, you may be able to get a depreciation schedule and you can obviously claim some big depreciation on it. You've just given me an idea. So my property is right. I have a rental agent for, for the only reason of like bookkeeping. So at the end of the financial year, they give me this statement, all income, all property expenses, our expenses, net income for the property. It's a one-page document. Amazing. I wonder if I can get them to get the bank to take my interest, principal and interest repayment out of the property people's trust account and then I just pay them anyway. Probably won't. I don't even know if you could do that. No, probably not because (laughs) it'd just be so good to, because the only thing I've got to do with my investment properties is find the bank statements and give the accountant the interest paid for those properties. So I basically give them a page of the bank statement for the year interest and the page from the uh, rental property agent. And that's, I give my accountants two pages per property done. Love it. Love it when it's like that. Unlike some clients that just give me every single rates notice, water notice, electricity, and it's a bit of a mess sometimes. Yeah. And just a fun fact uh, for those who have investment properties, I have the council rates come out of the trust account for the real estate. I have the property insurance come out of the trust. Um, 
any repairs or maintenance, the real estate will pay and debit from the rent. One of my properties, I had an aircon installed and it was like two and a half grand. And I said to the agent, oh, can you just pay that for me? And I, like it may have gone into deficit for a week or so, but either way, they were happy to pay it for me. So I just really maximized that bookkeeping function with having a property manager. Well, they take a fee, so you might as well get your money. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Lindsay Whitehead. Oh, hello, mate. He was on our My Millennial Story a couple of weeks ago. I heard on another podcast that you can possibly pay for financial advice with your super. Is this tax deductible? And is only for special circumstances like one of those self-managed funds or trusts? Seems a bit messy. Yeah, so super, there's a lot of rules and regulations around it. So super funds, so both industry and retail funds and also your self-managed super funds are governed by the Superannuation Industry Supervision Act. So basically one of the rules under this act is you have to meet what's called a sole purpose test. So as the name suggests, the expenses and everything coming out of that super fund need to be for the sole purpose of your super and the income generated for it. So if you're just going out wanting, you know, personal investment advice, that's not got anything to do with your super fund. That's not going to be tax deductible either. So just a a live example for uh, Lindsay, if for example, you went to a financial advisor and said, I want some financial advice. I want an investment account set up in my own name and I want my superannuation reviewed. And I'm just really keeping this very simple. And the financial advisor said, yep, we can actually do that because you only want a super review and an investment account yourself. We believe the cost will be $2,000 as an example. Because half of that advice or half of the work, half the advice is relating to the super fund, we can debit $1,000 of our fee from your super fund and then the other $1,000 you'll pay us. Now, because super is is its own tax entity at a tax rate of 15%, the $1,000 effectively gets paid to the advisor, but because that's a fee within the super fund, there's a 15% or $150 credit added back to the fund. So you basically, for that portion of the advice, are only paying $850. Now, you can't claim the fee outside of super once-off upfront advice yet on your tax return yet. So yeah, it's a good question, Lindsay. So a lot of people who go and get financial advice and they might do, uh, we want advice on super, we want advice on uh, investing, we want some help with cash flow, we want some projections done. If it was a $4,000 fee, well, they might only be able to uh, apportion 20% of that total work to the super fund and take the fee out of the super fund. So Here's a question for you, Amy, from Katie. When in a higher tax bracket, is private health insurance a non-negotiable when considering the Medicare tax levy? Yep. So I guess a common misunderstanding that I see with some people is they tend to get the Medicare levy and the Medicare levy surcharge a bit confused. So Medicare levy is payable by almost everyone. Um, There is a few exemptions if you're on low income. Um, stuff like that. Government benefits or yeah, 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 disability exactly. stuff. Yeah. Um, but then the Medicare levy surcharge, which is what we're referring to in this one, is payable if you don't have an appropriate level of private patient hospital cover and you earn above the income level. So there's a table on the HO website which basically details all the rates um, before the 2023 financial year 
it is 90,000 for a single or 180 for a family. Um, there's an increase of $1,500 per child in the family rate after your first child. Um, so basically they need to compare your income for surcharge purposes. So this is your taxable income, your reportable fringe benefits, add back any investment losses, example, negative geared rental property, and then also your reportable super contributions. So then at that point, if you're over the threshold, depending on where you fall in it, you will start paying at least 1%, 1.25, one and a half as it goes up. Now, for those who have a copy of my book and want a refresher on private health insurance, it's page 328. And I'm just going to read an example that's in the book around the Medicare levy surcharge. You know, know, I mentioned in the book, like if you thought superannuation was confusing, strap in because health insurance, private health insurance, it's wild. So an example that I've used in the book, a single 36-year-old earning $92,000 per year and paying 1% Medicare levy surcharge would be taxed an additional $920 a year. I did a quick quote for online basic hospital cover and the annual premium was $1,155 with HCF health insurance. This was without the lifetime health loading, and that's explained later. But the long story short is, in this situation, if you're paying $920 per year anyway for the surcharge, it's probably worth paying the extra $235 per year, which is the health insurance premium minus the $920 extra tax, and have the cover in your back pocket in case you need it. So that's my view. Like you're paying that first $920 anyway, the private health insurance is only 250 bucks or whatever. Yeah, you're better off getting the benefits of the health insurance and just give the ATO more money. Totally. So um, yeah, good hustle. Uh, There's a question here about donations. Christopher said, claiming education costs and donations. Well, we've touched on education costs. Uh, Talk to us about donations, Yep. So donations are only going to be tax deductible if they're to an organization who is a deductible gift recipient. So generally all the charities and everything will have all these details on their website or on their invoices. Um, But you can also use the ABN lookup website. You just type in the ABN or the name um, and there'll be a line down the bottom and it will basically tell you if they are deductible gift recipient or not. Um, It is important to note that a lot of you know, those crowdfunding platforms and social media, they won't be. Um, but there is some organizations that use those platforms that are mm. obviously deductible. Yeah. So just on that, there was someone in a, another Facebook group who wanted to know if I can donate my lounge to the Smith family and claim the value on tax. Well, the short answer in that situation is no. But if you search the ATO website, there are ways that you can, and we won't get into the weeds now because it's very rare, like if you donate um, assets to charities and stuff like that, or there are deductions. But if you're just sending your old crap to the Smith family, you can't go, oh, I think it was worth $300. I'm claiming that. No, nah, it, it needs to be a, a, a cash donation. Uh, but like all things, consult the ATO for their guidance. Were there any final comments around uh, tax this financial year and and lodging uh, one's tax return? Maybe talk to us about the dates of when it's due, uh, timing, if you do owe money, can you kick the can down the road, all that stuff. 
Yeah, of course. So if you're just lodging yourself, you have until the 31st of October to lodge. If you're lodging through a tax agent, they generally will get extensions to the 15th of May. Um, but this can vary depending on your actual circumstance. If you have a large payable the year before, they obviously would like their money a bit earlier. Um, but yeah, I guess as we touched on towards the start, if you've got any investments and everything, just make sure that you've got all your documents in order. You've got your record keeping set and don't lodge obviously until you have all the required statements. You mentioned one thing there about the lodgement time. I honestly think a non-negotiable, if you know that you're going to owe money to the ATO, pay an accountant because you get to hold on that money for the next six months or you might need to save it up. So that's easy. That accounting fee for your tax return will pay for itself, likely. I'm being wildy, but you know what I mean? Like why not get that extension if you need some more time to save Do you know if the ATO still have the interest-free payment plans or did they turn that back on? Um, So based off what the current interest rate is, I think it's around $15,000 of debt. The interest is under $100 and they'll automatically remit it. Um, If you have special circumstances, you can give them a call, you get your accountant to call um, and try and negotiate, I guess, on the payment plan aspect of interest-free or not. Um, Yeah. Yeah, all good. And then the only other way I'd say that you definitely should have an accountant is if you're self-employed or running a business. Like, you're not an accountant. You're a plumber. You're a butcher. You're a baker. You're a candlestick maker. Focus on what you do. Outsource the rest if you're a business owner. Get a bloody bookkeeper. Get a bloody accountant. You are running a business. Don't try and save money by not paying an accountant a few hundred dollars to do your returns. Bloody outsource it. That's what I'd say. But do what you want. Don't care. Well, Amy, unless there's anything else, we might get out of everyone's ears. It sounds good. Uh, Thanks for jumping on at such late notice. I did say in the Facebook group that the ATO were going to send on a representative. They contacted us. Oh, can we get someone on to talk? I'm like, yeah, I'll do this. And then for whatever reason, they've pulled out. So thanks for being in the Facebook group. Thanks for listening. And thanks for your time today. No worries. Thanks for having me on the podcast. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities, and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.